Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the first national sponsored commercial real estate podcast. I'm your co-host, Aaron Cameron, and with me as always, Adam Pawatic. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Stefan Kulas, who is the Managing Director of Smart Stop Asset Management. Thanks for coming on, Stefan. Thanks for having me. So, Stefan, um, let's just get right into it. My understanding is that Smart Stop is a asset management company for three different REITs, predominantly in the self-storage or explicitly in self-storage? So, yes, we're the, we're the sponsor and asset manager of, of three REITs um, based in the U.S., but we also do have a senior housing and student housing REIT that um, I believe was incepted, incepted uh, earlier this year, but that does focus solely on the U.S. at, at this point. Okay, so in Canada, you are explicitly, explicitly self-storage. self-storage yes. And so what do you do there? So I'm the managing director in Canada. Essentially, my role is to you know, represent the company up north of the border um, in essentially everything we do from acquisitions, um, development, liaising with, with our financiers, <laughs> and, and just carry the flag, really. I'm, I'm the boots on the ground guy up here. How many employees in Canada? One. Well done. <laughs> we other, other than the store level employees and regional and district managers, you know, one. How did you get into this? How did you find self-storage to be your, uh, your career path? I came from commercial real estate brokerage back in, I guess I made the transition over 14 months ago. So was that 20 some, at some point in the summer of 2016. And were you doing self-storage when you're doing that, that brokerage job? I started to, to focus on that as a, as a little, you know, niche in, in, in my practice. I, I was working in the industrial brokerage in, in the West End for Cushman and, and Wakefield. You know, it was, Somewhat by accident, I, I stumbled upon Smart Stop at the time. They had, you know, they had just uh, built up a deal a couple years ago that you know is where my office is based out of now at Mavis and Dundas. And Apple Self Storage had just purchased a, a, a new facility, which they were going to um, convert over, which was you know fairly fairly close to the existing Smart Stop location. So you know, obviously in commercial brokerage, you you focus on a territory um, and and you keep you know other business. Or I should say, you you keep other owners enlightened with with recent news in in that in that certain trade market as you know part of your business development. So as a course of that, I called our CEO and founder Michael Schwartz. Said, "No, hey, listen, this deal just happened. Are you aware of it?" Um, which you know led to the, the the larger conversation of you know what they were looking for at the time. They had even back then they had big ambitions to to grow their presence in the GTA. And, you know, really, we just had the conversation of what they're looking for. And you know, we built our relationship off of that. Fast forward to, you know, a year or so later, um, they were looking for someone to to lead the, the business up here. And the conversation was had and I uh, gratefully accepted. I actually had a similar experience getting to know Michael Schwartz. I, I saw a transaction in... Uh, I can't remember which publication. So I started calling California because that's where their headquartered was, California. And Michael eventually got through to him and he said, I'll be in Toronto soon. We should have a breakfast meeting at 6.30 in the morning. And he was flying the day previous. And so if you do the math, for him, that was a 3.30 a.m. breakfast meeting because he's on California time. But I think that's the, the kind of driven person he is, right? Oh, so yeah. that, that seems normal. Yes. Let's start, let's start in the U.S. So in the U.S., they have... Not just self storage, but you said retirement and student housing. And student housing, focus. yes. And, and I, 
I'm sure you're focused on Canada, so I won't ask you too many specifics yeah. about the U.S. market. But in scale and scope, how big are they in comparison to maybe some other self-storage owners, uh, managers in the U.S.? Sure. Well, I believe as of a recent publication from the Self Storage Association, I I don't have it in front of me, so don't don't quote me on it. But I believe we are the eleventh largest self storage. Uh, owner operator in the U.S. right now. And how many how many square feet is that? Do you have any sense? Just shy of nine million. Oh, it's just tiny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Stefan, you probably know the story uh, better than I do, but I, I, you know, I'm familiar with it. That the original fund that started, I think, in 2008, uh, transacted in 2015 for a sum of money that would be staggering in the Canadian market, but uh, not so large in a, an American context. But uh, th- this was that was kind of the Michael Schwartz's first run through, I believe, of self-storage. And if you can tell that story, that'd be great. Yes. So back in November 2015, um, Strategic Storage Trust One, which was the first REIT that uh, Michael Schwartz founded. And it was kind of smart stops, you know, first run in the self-storage, self-storage industry. That was sold to to Exerspace Self-Storage for $1.4 billion. That deal included... I believe off top of head, just shy of 200 stores in the U.S., um, nothing Canada related, though we did have five stores at the time, which, you know, when that was sold off and we did retain those Canadian properties, that was, you know, the impetus to us saying, okay, well, we have these, we should, we should really continue making a, a run at our, at our, at our growth projections for, for Canada. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I, I do, well, I can't comment on what the largest, self-storage operators here would have, but that number would be enormous. But it worked out well, I guess, for I mean, for you and your role here in that you got to carve out the five properties, which is kind of a portfolio starter kit for a much larger push into the Toronto sure. market. Sure, and since then we have you know, another, we purchased another seven. So we have 10 stores operational right now with an additional 200 development. So just shy of a million square feet in the GTA. And why why is it that you guys are bullish on the GTA as a market for self-storage? Sure. Well, the easiest way to explain that would be to compare the, the GTA um, to, to the U.S. or, you know, the U.S. as a whole is significantly built out in terms of, in terms of self-storage and the existing space that's in the marketplace there. I think they're sitting around seven and a half square feet per capita, which is, you know, that's a pretty large amount of. Do the math. That's like, yeah. a, what am I? Do that's like a billion square feet of, of self storage, right? Basically. Yeah. And there's be over sorry, two billion. No, two, two yeah, over, two point yeah. one billion yeah. or two point three billion square feet <laughs> yeah. of self storage. Yeah. So if we want to, you know, convert that back to the U.S., we're sitting at around two, two and a half. Or to Canada, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, or two. even even to Canada, holistically, we're probably sitting around that number, if not a bit less. Okay. And so the Canada and the GTA are about the same, you think? I'd say probably if you mix in the rest of Canada, we're, we, we might be you know a hair lower. Okay. I mean, really, the bigger the big markets that you have are Vancouver, Toronto. You know, I think any other key metropolitan area, Calgary, Edmonton, sure. Montreal, Montreal yeah. Halifax, I, you know, sure. I'd, maybe a little bit of Ottawa. Maybe a bit of Ottawa, but you know, I think those probably have some interest for us to expand to. But you know, if you're looking at just the GTA solely, you're probably around two square feet per capita, maybe two and a half. It really depends on who you ask because there's no yeah, sure. no no real official study that, that's been conducted. Um so I mean, based off of our numbers and kind of conversations with other owner operators that we have relationships with, I think we're, you know you'd be comfortable at saying so, two. So it's two. almost a quarter the size of of the market in the US in theory on a per capita basis. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 
but I, I've heard this argument before. There's no way that Canada is ever going to meet that sort of seven square foot per capita, right? We just don't have the same demand. I don't think we're, we're the same customer, no. And why is that? What do you think that is? I mean, if you're looking at the U.S., the U.S. is heavily reliant on a military movement. Uh, movement. Yeah, I'm sure. not sure the word, the word I'm looking for, yeah. but you know, the military itself is a transient, you know, transient lifestyle that is a major contributor to to self store the self storage rental base. I'd also say that just the makeup of of our country is less transient. If you're looking at the major, met- like I said, we go back to those major metropolitan areas. Your major commercial centers are probably going to be Vancouver. In Toronto. Toronto, and the majority of your population base is already built out around those around those, those two, two cities. cities. So yeah. there's not a lot of cross movement between which I think in the U.S. there's multiple cities and commercial districts that you know people do move back and forth from. Um, even just you know the way the student base moves around, you know where you grow up, um, it's not necessarily necessarily the same state that you're going to go to school in. So I think as a, as a whole, we're less transient than our than our U.S. Sure, counterparts, sure. which you know maybe contributes a little bit less to the self-storage business, but that's probably the main differentiator. And I, I mean, this would be you know purely anecdotal, but we only have a few major draws for employment in Canada. And generally from, this is purely based on just kind of speaking with people over my career. If they did move to a city for a job, that's kind of the city they stay in. Whereas when you talk to Americans, they'll hop from city to city yeah. every four years and not think twice about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's curious. You play that mental math in your game, and anybody listening, you can do that too. Like, think of the cities in Toronto, or sorry, cities in Canada. It's the same thing, right? Toronto, Canada. <laughs> um, lost a lot think, of listeners. <laughs> <laughs> think of the cities in Canada that you'd move to, right? Just willingly, like, yeah, no, I could see myself living there, and I, I could probably put Toronto and Vancouver on that market. Maybe Calgary, maybe Edmonton, maybe Montreal, although the language is a big barrier. Maybe Halifax. I mean, that's kind of a fun city. Ottawa might be a bit too small, but that's it. Like, you know, we can lame them on, on one hand. But you try to do the same thing in the U.S. I mean, just starting with the major New York, L.A., Chicago, Houston, Dallas, but keep going, right? Miami, Tampa Bay, New Orleans, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Indianapolis. I mean, you can just, I'm sure I'm missing 10 or 15, Denver, Seattle, right? There's so many places where, yeah, I could probably see myself living there or at least could entertain the idea of, of figuring out how to live there. So, I mean, to your point. There's just so much more movement. I imagine. Yes. I don't know for a fact, but I'm sure there's so much more movement around. Yeah. So if you're building a new site then, well, I guess you yeah. are building new sites, what would you target as businesses in the immediate area that would or Yeah, like what metrics are you looking at? That's a good question for for your for your development. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a number. So um we have that the the rates that um you know a target market might be able to command. We have the amount of existing supply that's already in that market. Um, we have you know site characteristics that we also look for. Number one, is it land? How much density can we build on that land? Is that land highly visible from a highway and or a major um, major traffic artery? Is it adjacent to retail and or any other type of you know any other type of business that would draw uh, you know a large customer base? Mm-hmm or a population based towards that, that landmark, right? Like a mall, um, shopping centers, grocery stores, things of that nature. Because it's got to be a product of convenience. People got to well, see yeah, it. And, and, and accessibility. Yeah. So it's right. more, more urban sites. Is that what you're looking at? Urban, suburban, 
I mean, historically, you always you think self storage. At least you know, in, in my mind, twenty years ago, you always imagined driving out to some farmland and sure, you know, turning left on a dirt road, and then there's this whole bunch of like red, yeah, or, and there's orange, a guy, there's a, doors, there's right? a guy yeah. in like a tank top guarding it with a shotgun. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. yeah. <laughs> isn't that is that what you do? No, <laughs> no. So uh, we've we've come a long ways, <laughs> which is which is also part of you know. We're we're also trying to help educate the public on on what self storage actually is, which I think in the U.S. they have you know a strong understanding, which goes back to your to your original question, you know, why do they use so much more of it than we do? And I think that's just because it's been around there for so long. I, I can't recall a date when you know the first public storage opened in Southern California, but. You know, it's certainly a concept that's well known there, and I think there's still a bit of educating that needs to be done. So, up here. and part of that, and I'm recalling back to another conversation we had, I think, on this podcast about you know, in a lot of American cities, there are no basements, versus in Toronto and I think a lot of Canadian cities, that's just a regular part of of construction, housing construction. Sure. So, it's a great sort of you know replacement for self storage use when you can just throw as much as you possibly can fit into your basement. Sure. And how do you combat that kind of, you know, where are you seeing, I mean, put it another way, where are you seizing, seeing your user base? And, and I don't know if that's a discussion between commercial versus residential use or sure. what else, what else are you seeing as far as just your tenant base? Well, our tenant base, you know, for personal use, I'd say it's probably around 70%, 30% is, is commercial. Okay. Now that 70% are those long-term users or is that, no, I'm in between places. So I'm coming so in for that, a month that, or two. That, that will all depend on, on the operator. Um, and you know, everyone keeps their, their own metrics. Some lengths of stay might be shorter than others at certain operators, but I think we're around 18 months ourselves. So when you're, when you're developing a site or targeting a site for acquisition, you know, do you have the, the, the particular tenant use or the type of tenant in mind? And then how do you gear that tenant experience or user experience to, to, to hit the particular tenant type that you think is going to be the best use for that location? Sure. So that all, you know, backs into the way we really, you know, search for sites and the way we design our facilities. You know, we're, we're, we're targeting locations that have easy access points and, and high visibility from, you know, commercially trafficked locations. Um, we're building, um, you know, class A facilities, which which means their you know level of security is um, top notch. We have you know they're they're highly lit. They're you, you want to feel safe when when you're in the facility at all times, and that caters to you know a, a large portion of our consumer base are, are women between the ages of of eighteen and forty years old. So you want you really want to make that customer feel safe when when they're using your facility. So I actually can relate to that. In that, uh, my mother recently called me about nine o'clock at night, and she'd been moving some stuff out of her storage space. I can't, sure. I can't remember why. And I envisioned in my head a dark, scary, <laughs> awful storage space. And so I jumped in my car, go over to help her. And of course, as soon as I got there, I kind of realized that oh no, this is actually this is pretty uh, normal. Yeah, this yeah, is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not so bad. I, I, uh, those that listen, you know, historically, you no, know, I'm a I'm a self storage user. I, my family had four of them at one point, just in the really? last sort of twelve to eighteen months. Both my parents bolted on me when I moved out of the house and kept all their stuff and then said, you know what, we're not coming back. So all that stuff and all those storage lockers are yours. So I've spent the last couple of years just like 
purging like crazy. <laughs> but I've, I've come across many different selfs because I moved into one and then didn't like it. And it's true. I mean, having the the, the lighting is, is important. But for me, it was 24-7 access. Sure. Because I the one I, w- I was in one unit, and I won't mem- mention the name, but it closed every day at 6 p.m. So if I knew mm-hmm. I needed to get something out of my self-storage locker, I had to leave work early just to scramble to get to the locker on time, which is just nuts to me. Yeah. Right? And, I th- and I think, you know, 24, 24 hour access as well as, you know, I think we have access between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. Though right. There, are, there yeah. are exceptions for if you make a request where you can come in and use it after hours. But because generally no one, sometimes guys aren't doing anything too good. Or, I wouldn't be there. After, people aren't doing anything too sure. good. After and I'm, maybe right? I don't need 24-7. <laughs> like, it's not like I'm waking up in the middle of the night being like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to my storage locker. Right? But, that goes, but, but that's, no, still. I'm just saying that goes back to, you know, security on the site and just sure. making sure everyone feels secure. Um, and what about, what about indoor climate control versus outdoor drive up? Like, how do you, how do you decipher what's needed in the neighborhood and wh- where do you kind of think the ratio is that that's the right mix? You know, it, it, I think long gone are the days in the GTA where a developer, at least in the GTA core where a developer um, or owner will, will, will purchase a, a, a land site and just build strictly drive up units. I think that the cost base right now to do so doesn't make sense. Um, so you really have to maximize density. But that being said, we'll always try and utilize some portion of the site for for drive up units because li- those will always be in demand. So particularly, I'm assuming for commercial use. I know when I go to my storage locker, sometimes there's just white van after yeah. white van. Some guy dumping off his day's sure. work for the next guy tomorrow morning to come yep. pick it up, right? And it's probably cheaper for them to do that than rent an industrial, you know, node or something like that. So yes. When you look at it, I mean, even comparing it to industrial, it's tough to find a thousand square feet, even even five hundred square feet for you know an industrial commercial user on short flexible terms, um, without locking into you know a five year deal at yeah at, of course at X ray. I don't know what, what's what, what are you six six fifty now in the, the better <laughs> in industrial stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure for the or, 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 it's or, small sure. Shoot, yeah. yeah for five hundred yeah. square feet it might be ten bucks yeah. just because you can charge it right? yeah so we're we're able to provide that service to a customer base that would otherwise find it difficult to rent something flexible that they have, you know, easy, number one, easy accessibility too, because we, we, we'd like to be located next to residential neighborhoods. So to say that he has a, a garage or not a garage, but a drive up unit, um, or even just a, a unit itself, five minutes from his home, he can go, go there to and from work. You know, we, we really want to integrate to be part of the community. It'd be easily be scalable as well. If you experience massive yeah. growth, just get some more units and exactly. 3000 square feet. Do you, do you think that the market's going to, because I've, I've heard crazy rumors, maybe they're not crazy, maybe they're, they're perfectly legitimate of, you know, the, the user experience where there's a coffee shop in the, in the foyer and uh, you can get your car washed when you drop your car off and like adding those sort of amenities to a self-storage facility. I know they're out there. I know it's, it's yeah. coming. Do you think that's a legitimate model or do you think that's just sort of fool's errand? I'm not going to be a skeptic on the way you know, some operators are providing, you know, services that would otherwise be considered loss leaders. Um, some of it would make sense, you know, a, a free truck with unit rental or, or, or things like that. But, you know, to have a full out barista in, <laughs> in our, in our facility, I think is, it's a, it's a bit odd. I mean, we want to provide cost effective, 
easy to use storage space and we don't want to complicate that model and it's just you know we have a large number of stores throughout the Canada and the US and I don't think we want to complicate the you know why why ruin why ruin a good thing if yeah. it works <laughs> it, it ain't broke don't fix it right yeah. Yeah. it would be a subsect of the market that if i'm going to store something but for 6 months i don't care about a coffee if i'm going to show up there twice a year sure but certainly there's been some recent news articles released about a couple of groups that are certainly looking to make a big splash in in the GTA through a number of ways that they're they're approaching the industry but that's also good for us too because they're they're educating the the general public on what self storage is and they're creating this this vision of a, a safe a safe place to store your to store your things, and it, it makes it's good for all all of us. And they're, they're likely charging a premium, right? Putting your pricing at more mid market than high end. Is that that fair? It yet to be determined because you know some of them haven't officially opened yet, but I would I would assume so. So what what are you finding then on the development side when you're out there uh, hunting for land? It's tough. I think now when you're looking at, I guess, depends on where you're looking in the GTA, you're seeing what one and a half million dollars an acre for traditional industrial zone land, which is generally our, our classification um, so, from a zoning perspective. Storage does fall under industrial zoning. Is that? Yes. Okay. Yes. Toronto's a bit finicky. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it, it may depend. It may, it, may, it may depend, especially with the new, I guess, comprehensive zoning bylaw that the, the city um, has enacted. But generally, we're in industrial use. Yes. So you're not competing typically with, with uh, residential developers, at least. No. Because they're looking at those, that land in a totally different metric than you are. So yes, I guess if you have a residentially zoned plot of land, likely is you're not you're not in the market. Correct. Okay. Cool. So yeah, we're we're traditionally looking at probably industrial commercial pricing, and it really depends on how much density we're looking to put there. And I think generally that's what you're going to be seeing a lot lately, or sorry, a lot more in the future with new development, you know, from all owner operators um, being multi-story class A industrial, and it's just too expensive to build just straight drive up anymore, as as I alluded to, but. You know, all all of the inputs in general for for development have become more expensive. So, it's it's a matter of finding the right mix of existing product and future development to both keep your pipeline full for the next five to ten years, as well as generating you know cash flow growth. And then, kind of, I guess the third way to acquire assets would be converting existing industrial product. Yep. What's the battle on that front right now? So I, I think we we prefer to just go straight land development at, at this point. I think a couple of years ago when, you know, the industrial price per square foot was probably a little more palatable to for us. It was, you know, a trade-off between the two. But right now I think we're we're more focused on just straight greenfield development. You know, when you're looking at industrial conversions, you're you're constrained to an existing building envelope um, that you'll you know you'll try and mez out you know a portion of that of that warehouse um, section in the back, depending on how big the clear height is. But you know, I I think with the way pricing is, even if you back out you know the buildable the price per buildable, and then you're left with the replacement cost of the building. Generally, we can build it for cheaper. Mm. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> Years ago, I used to work at Collier's, an industrial brokerage, similar to Stefan. And I met with a gentleman then who was a self-storage developer. And this was back when industrial was not the hot commodity it is today. And even then, he was saying he needs to buy it at 
I mean, I think we're talking buildings in the 50,000 square foot range. He yep. needs to buy at about 60 bucks, maybe 70 bucks tops to make it work. And that was difficult then. I cannot imagine how tough that would be now. Yeah. I and mean, I think what we're at, certainly over a hundred dollars a square mm-hmm. foot now, yeah, 100, 100, 150 in Etobicoke yeah. for kind of our size range that we're looking at. And it all depends on the municipality. I mean, if you're looking at Mississauga, you're getting even ding just six what is it six about six bucks a square foot for a change of use change wow. of use fee on the development uh, development charges? So not making it easy for you. No. What about the mom and pop stuff that you're looking to? And then what about something? Let's say you built something and you're looking to sell it. What would the different cap rates be? Sure. So if you're looking at anything existing, you know it obviously depends on on the area that that you're looking at. But I think if you know, generally you're look you're grouping the GTA as a whole as just a one target yeah. market when you're buying. Well, carve it up if you need to. Yeah. So, or give us a range. Maybe so that's you're, the you're, prob- you're probably in the five and a half to six okay. to six range, depending on who's underwriting you're looking at. You're, there's always going to be a gap between the seller and, and and the buyer, right? So. I'd say five and a half to six, and that naturally, as you get into the downtown core, that that has its own complete different set of metrics, and you're probably in the in closer to four and a half, five range wow. from what we've seen with some competing deals. That you know there have there hasn't been a lot of a lot of trading in the last year. I mean, Storage Vault picked up a fairly sizable portfolio from Sentinel, kind of with undisclosed. Undisclosed terms, but if I, I think if you look at the analyst reports holistically, it was probably I don't know five and a half percent from what they're mm-hmm. what they're estimating. And those are all located in kind of core geographic markets. And but they, that's come down pretty rapidly, right? Like it, it maybe they've compressed a bit more aggressively than some other asset classes, right? Like yeah, they, think, they were trading well, the seven to before, seven and a half only before, three or four years ago. Yeah, and I think before you know three four years before that, you're in the double digits, which is I, I think what the banks were underwriting it at, and I think that's why there was such a yeah, lag in sure. getting banks to come to, you know come to terms with with financing potential potential acquisitions so or to projects the, to do the comparison. So let's say eight years ago you're talking let's say 10% for a storage facility in apartments it yeah. might have been 6% so yeah. 4% different in your in your cap rate now apartments are trading at let's call it 4 i mean again it depends but let's say 3 and a half to 4 and a half and you're saying that storage facilities are trading in that sort of 5 to, to 6 so you're only now a point and a half behind so not nearly the same kind of yield as you used to have or the difference yes. the delta right and, and on that same but, theme, I mean, maybe Aaron can uh, agree or disagree with me, is that the availability of funds on the debt side, uh, the pricing on it has come way down in the time frame as well as the, I guess, the view of lenders as the risk associated with self-storage is also uh, diminished. Yeah, so to Stefan's point, I mean, like the banks were probably using a 10 cap no matter what you bought it at five years ago or eight years ago. And, and I'm sure First National wasn't much different, but I think there's been much more education in the marketplace, education in the communities, education in society about the benefits and the use and the stability. And it still is much more about the management of the facility. But certainly, I think everybody, again, as a whole, is more comfortable with, with self-storage. Would you get the same sense? Yeah, and I think that's what the banks had to, had to get comfortable with as well in terms, you know, coming to to terms with you know who the who the operator is going to be. And you know, even though I'm saying you know, okay, that's you know five and a half cap. Let's just yeah. So let's just say five and a half half cap for you know GTA core product. You know that we'd still like to see some upside in it. And generally, you know, an institutional manager will be able to bring will will be able to bring that. 
to the table when they when they do purchase a site and or you know and or portfolio. Especially if you're taking, if you're taking over from a mom and pop, yeah, who's may own one or well, two. Well, sure, you'll facilities. have a, you know you'll have more efficiencies through your marketing, employee expenses, and marketing expenses, etc. I mean, it's all more, all economies of scale, right? And when when buying them. What are you finding on the finance side? Just for full disclosure, First National has financed uh, two of your development projects. But when you take uh, you know product to market, what are you? What's the availability? What's the reaction of lenders? I think kind of the the alternative lenders have stepped up, you know, more than you know your your Schedule One banks in in Canada. You know, some of them have been pretty or are somewhat. Uh, I don't know how much I'm supposed to say, but you know they 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 you know they they're pretty forth forth with in in terms of how much they're they're able to step up. You know, they'll, you know, generally fifty percent at at LTV at most, no construction financing, no not a lot of flexibility in the financing. So. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I'm not, no, you know, I'm not no, really sure how much how priv how, how no, privy I'll say it for you. Yeah. Okay, so um, I I don't know this to be true, but I'm I'm assuming it is. So in the CMBS world, right, which was a big thing in you know early 2000s, and of course was you know a, a major contributor to the the issues we had in 2008. But leading up between 2001, I say maybe 1999 to 2008, self storage was a great asset for the CMBS market, right? For that for that product. And so that probably really helped in getting those alternative lenders like First National and others more comfortable with the self-storage facilities and, and just the self-storage operations. I know it's something First National who used to play a lot in the CMBS world has become very comfortable with self-storage. No, no, there are no more real CMBS pools. There was just one recently, but it's not the same kind of market it was 10, 15 years ago. But it had to. We had to enlighten ourselves to how self storage worked and what the risks were. And if it had a solid operator and it had a solid history, it was generally a good investment from a financing perspective because you could get higher yields on your interest rate because you had higher yields on the cap rate. But it still felt just as safe as as a retirement home or anything else that you might be putting in that CMBS pool. That has a big uh, operator aspect to it. Yeah, it's a big time. I mean, you wouldn't, if let's say you coming in off the street saying, hey, I just got a great deal in a self-storage facility of no experience. Like you would never find a, a finance company to lend to you. But I think if you've got somebody like this group that's been there forever, right? That's, that's um, gives you a lot more comfort as a lender. And for anybody, I guess, who's not that familiar with self-storage, but for some reasons listening to this, lenders in general tend to get a little queasy about any mortgage involved in a property that has a heavy management aspect. So you're talking about hotels, you're talking about, you know, even student residence, anything where the, the management is going to be considerably more than a you know, triple net lease with a shopper's drug market. Yeah, and follow the logic. We're always looking at a worst case scenario, right? We're the negative Nancys of, of the real estate industry. And it's always like, well, what's the worst case? The well, worst case is you walk away, give me the keys. Now sure. I've got to start operating yeah, this I thing. I don't think you guys want to manage the workout on, on <laughs> no, that. No, right? right? So like, I like, you know, we like safe assets, like apartment buildings and, you know, retail facilities with triple net leases where literally you just kind of got to you have one person on the ground that collects the rents and, and remits them to you and that's it. Versus a self-storage or retirement homes or hotels, like, like Adam mentioned, you need an expert Expertise, you need a whole staff to run the thing. You need to know what how to make the right decisions, and it becomes a much more heavy lift. So, but however, with smart operators with good history, it alleviates that risk. Yeah, definitely something you look a little closer at than uh, say other asset mm-hmm. classes. I have a question for you: What's luxury storage? What does that mean? Do you like? I've heard this before. I'm building a luxury storage facility. What is that? What's the difference between 
a standard prototypical nice lights you know good operating sure. hours what is what would the luxury be well i'm, I'm curious to, as to to who you heard that from <laughs> <laughs> i can't a, i can't speak Adam. Yeah, I can't, I can't speak he on it. He was selling me this deal. You're selling otherwise. this deal he was doing a couple of months ago. Yeah. <laughs> this great REIT out of the U.S. was building this. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what did you know? Like, I've just heard it. I, and I, in my mind, I think, I don't know. Is that the, the, with the barista and the car wash? Or what does it look like? In the current marketplace, there's certainly a lot of action going on in terms of new development and a lot of operators looking to to jockey for market position. And I think any way that they can come up with a term to differentiate themselves from you know their neighbor, all the power to them. But in the end, it's just a cost yeah, that gets transitioned over to the customers. Yeah, and some you know some companies coming into the market are pretty explicit that. You know they they're going to be providing a huge array of services and, and and product lines within you know built around the self storage experience. We don't really know how it's going to work because no one's gotten that far. No, yeah. no one's gotten that far, and I think uh, what it does is just it distracts you from the the day to day management of running the core of your business. Right. And how, how labor intensive is it on that side? How many people do you have employed at uh, one of your facilities? There's there's two employees per facility, and they're there day and, in and day yeah, out day, managing. Yeah, and they'll they'll work flex shifts, so either one will be in and then relieve the other as as you know mid, midway through the day, or they'll at, at certain points during the week they'll be two at one time. Weekends probably are more busy than other times. Yeah, yeah. So I think one of the managers at our facility in in Mississauga, she was. She was she was just working by herself on Saturday this past Saturday, and she had ten move-ins or or ten reservations in, in one day. So it's a lot, um, it's a lot of yeah, onboarding. All, all, kudos to her. <laughs> <laughs> but generally, you know, one to, one to two with you know a district manager looking over, um, you know, the west end of, of the GTA, and then one for the east end, and then a regional manager um, looking over both of them, and they both, and then everyone reports to our COO, COO, sorry, in in California. So we we do run lean. Sure, sounds like it. Yeah. But what else would you have to go into keeping the you know the cash flow coming? You mean a marketing department? I sure, assume. yeah. So we yeah. we pride ourselves on 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 being mostly proprietary. So um, from the back end infrastructure that basically our revenue management runs on, what our marketing runs on, um, we have our own in house call center now. We we're really hands on in you know we 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 do storage we do it well we don't want it tr- we don't we don't want it in the hands of anyone else we control our own fate so everything is centrally located or centrally run I should say out of uh, our, our head office in Ladera Ranch California and day to day I'm speaking with you know our CIO Wayne Johnson he's out of Texas con- <laughs> actually though so 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 Wayne so, so, so let's uh, yeah. let, let me, Wayne is in. Dallas, Texas, and then everyone else is in Ladera Ranch, California. What's the growth plan for the next couple of years? I know that you're obviously you're at the front of front of the battle line trying to trying to drum up new products. So what you know, what's your kind of targets over the next five years for uh, for smart uh, smart smart stuff asset management? Sure, and it's pretty. It's it's simple, it's straightforward. It's buy anything and everything we can um, on the existing side and spread into new markets. You know, Vancouver is very uh, viable 
Calgary. I was out in Calgary, you know, a couple of weeks ago at a, at a conference, and I do think you know times are are certainly changing uh, in in the Calgary Edmonton markets. I mean, you know, guys would tell stories of how back in I guess the early two thousands you build a facility. Uh, they lease it up in in three months, right? That's like seventy five thousand square feet. It was it was crazy out there, just in re- for in terms of real estate in general, right? But um, you know, things have certainly slowed down. But I think you you, you certainly do see some momentum start to pick up uh, in those markets, which I do think is a, you know a certain buying opportunity for us as well. So Vancouver, we're we're looking at some some stuff in Montreal as well, and then obviously we're going to expand our platform in the in the GTA. This is in conjunction with you know a pipeline of future development for the next you know, ten years, really, if if not more. We have a joint venture partnership with with Smart Centers REIT um, that that we're certainly going to be developing a lot of a lot of new new product in 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 core markets and. Really, you know, it, it, it's a great partnership for both of us. I think all of the land that they have, at least where their centers are built up, are is everything we look for in in yeah, the perfect self storage location. You went through all the right? metrics. I can yeah, imagine it. It, right? it. It's all those boxes. high traffic, high visibility. You know, I think it used to be when you know once you saw like a smart centers with a Walmart go up in in a, in a, in a neighborhood you know that there's going to be way more development in terms of housing coming around there too right so they're great community uh, centers for us to work our way into and you know obviously with their land bank across the country it allow us to expand our development pipeline um, rapidly you know across into those core markets as well so certainly it allows us to to amass scale in those target markets Markets too for for new acquisitions. And when you mentioned land bank, that would specifically be excess land as part of their retail developments, not current land with nothing on it. Yes. Right. That's a. I know that's been a hot topic as well in the apartment universe is excess land for retail. You know, parking requirements going down. It's an opportunity to build. Uh, so this would strictly be the sites you're looking at would be just taking excess land, and putting a site on it. Sure. I mean, you mentioned you know underutilized parking lots or kind of out parcels within a larger. Right. A larger uh, shopping center. You know, we didn't do it. Maybe we should have done this off the top. But do you want to name the REITs that uh, that you guys represent or are managing for? Oof, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sure there's somebody out there going, well, I need to know who. Are the, what are the REITs? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so these are all, these, and to, to go back, so we are the sponsor and asset manager of three REITs in the self-storage asset class. Strategic Storage Trust 2, Strategic Storage Growth Trust, and Strategic Storage Trust 4. So it, it's a bit confusing because we call it Strategic Storage Trust 4, but you're like, where's the three? So we refer internally to Strategic, you know, to read three as, as the growth trust. <laughs> are, they, are, they, and are they publicly traded? They're public non-traded. So we, we raise money through a broker-dealer network in okay. the U.S. And I do think eventually we, you know, I think we'll hope to raise some money domestically up here as well as we, you know, grow some scale. Right. Future. We talk about the future of self-storage. Sure. And, and I'll tell you where my mind goes, and maybe just Amazon's sort of seeping into my brain, but I, I can imagine a, a, a time in the future where I want uh, to get access to, you know, I, I put something for my kid in self-storage. And so mm-hmm. I just go online and send an email, and 20 minutes later, my self-storage unit shows up at my driveway. And yeah. I go in, grab something, say thanks, and it drives away. Sure, that. but, you know, there's obviously companies that offer, you know, I think pods is one of them. Logistic, 
you know, kind of container services that come to your door. So that's a thing? I didn't just make that up? No, it, yeah. it is a thing I already. I but, didn't know that. Okay. So yeah, you basically rent a container. <laughs> it, gets dro- here. it gets dropped off at your at your doorstep and or on your driveway. You can fill it. You can choose to, you know, keep it on your driveway or they can come pick it oh, up. Okay. I've seen that. That's more like short terms though. Is yeah. It not? Like if I'm renovating my basement, I get one of these things. I throw everything in there. And three weeks later, when my rent, my rent was done, I take everything out. Or you're talking about like the people do that long term. People do it long term, but I, you know that's more of a logistics business from from the operator stand standpoint than it is an actual self storage business. You know, obviously, there's some disruptors that are coming into the market that offer valet storage, where you need to store a couple boxes of something. Where you know they'll come in a in their okay, in, their, in their sprinter and pick it up and and then bring it back to you. You can, you can, itemize you can archive it, it on your phone. It. We don't see them really as a direct competitor. And I met with um, a group last week that is in that space and they don't really see us as a competitor either just a cost thing then you think like they're just the, the price to do that is so much different than the price to have a five by five in your storage facility that yeah you don't see the same market you're not targeting the same market sure yeah and I, you know I, I do think it, it also boils down to the the amount of stuff that you plan to store and for the duration of time that you plan on storing it for you know our average length of stay is 18 months I don't think it's feasible for for someone who is you know you know maybe even storing a box of items I, I don't I don't can't quote me on what those guys charge, but you know you're paying a delivery fee each time. It goes back and forth too. Whereas we look to be our target market is generally within the GTA a three kilometer radius. So we're trying to attract customers that are within that three kilometers, which is you know we feel as you know what is that a five minute drive? I, I, uh, yeah, I think, right. Most, so yeah. we, you know we're we're attracting customers from their, we're, yeah we're attracting traffic. customers from their own communities that to give them the ease of accessibility to access their stuff whenever they want. So. I think that's where those guys can't compete in terms of right. the the efficiency in which that or the ease at which someone can just drive, you know, t- 5 minutes to to their storage locker, access anything they want in there and be stay, done with it. Stay, yeah, done with with it. it. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like an expensive proposition, although I'm sure there is a subset of users that would make perfect sense for them. Sure. Uh, and I, I mean I just don't think the They'll probably tell me I'm wrong when I really haven't dug too, too deep into it. But I don't think the scalability um, in Canada makes for sense. those types of businesses makes sense. Is there any other technology in the pipeline that you're excited about or fearful of or have an opinion on? You know, technology-wise, I spoke about it briefly, but we, you know, we pride ourselves on you know, kind of our proprietary systems that we've developed in-house. Um, you know, we like to pride ourselves on our revenue management system, which I, we do feel is probably the best that that any that any owner operator has, um, and really that allows us to effectively maximize our our unit rate mix. Right? I mean, it's like the hotel business your your rates are always going to be variable depending on what your occupancy is, and we you know. We're, we're pumped that we feel that we, we have the, the perfect formula set up to always achieve the, you know, the best rates for, for any given unit mix or sorry, any given vacancy rate at any, across all of our facilities. So we love that, that part of our business. And, you know, obviously with our, with our call center now too, we're able to drive more traffic. I think just, just know, we, have, yeah. we have a 70% conversion rate online, which, you know, goes back to your question on how do we attract millennials mm-hmm. making it easy to book. You go online, you pre-book a unit, all our pricing is visible. And I think we, we were the first ones to bring transparent pricing in, into Canada. 
So everything's available online. People want to know what they're paying for. Do you charge? Sorry, I, I, I kind of strayed away from your, 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 your question there, but I had to put that plug in. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, just related to that, how often would you refresh your prices? Like how, how reactive is it to market? Daily. Okay. So it's, it is like, yeah, gas do you charge? Do you charge monthly or every four weeks? Monthly, we don't believe in four week cycles. Yeah, see, I got I got <laughs> pooched by that. I got in. I was like, oh, whatever. I'm paying three fifty sure, per month. You know, that's the, great. The, and then I started getting these like every four weeks. I'm like, wait a minute, yeah. that's twenty. Darn it! Like that's, yeah, that, that's extra well, four hundred fifty bucks that's, a year. That's I have their to pay, sales right? pitch, right? Yeah. Well, well, you're only paying you know X amount uh, for every four weeks, which is cheaper because you're you're not paying for that extra two days. You're not. Yeah. You're no, not, but it doesn't work. It's an extra <laughs> no, payment a year, yeah. right, or whatever extra two payments. It, I mean, it probably works. If if you're there for a couple months, but the thing is, you know, everyone always says, "Oh, I only need it for a couple months," right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got caught because I was just comparing. I thought I was comparing apples to apples, so I was like, "You know, this place per month or that place per month," and then I was paying every four. Anyway, <laughs> all my crap's in there now, so there's no way I'm moving it out. They got me. They got me. Yeah, <laughs> Stefan loves hearing that kind of stuff. <laughs> Sorry. So, technology-wise. Eventually, you know, people, you know, some owners are, are starting to integrate it. You know, you have employee lists, um, reservations. So, uh, you, you know, you can go into a facility. There's, they have an iPad attached and you can put your information in. It provides you an access code. You go in and, you know, it, it, it removes the need for an employee, which I think at the same time removes that, that personal experience and service that, you know, an actual employee is able to provide to a customer coming in and, you know, assure them with any questions they might have, uh, you know, it, it gives them a sense of just a sense of security. I think, yeah. you know, a sense, you know, a, sh- a sense of oh, assurance absolutely. that, you know, they're being, they're actually being looked after anything, any questions that they have with regards to storage, which generally, you know, new renters have um, can be addressed right there rather than calling a call center Oh, there's nothing worse too. When you've got need, emotionless need a quick, person, a quick answer. answer yeah. Press six if you need this. Press seven. If you need this zero. Hit zero. Right? I, I think in the U.S. Yeah. now they've had like they have like robots that will like take you on a tour through through like the facility and and none of that stuff's come up here yet. Yeah. But that's definitely the future. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, what about like booking elevators? Like I've had experiences where I need an elevator yep. and. I end up sitting there for an hour and a half because some guy is loading his entire house into it or something like that, right? Yeah. You know, I, I think that all depends on the facility you rented. And if you want to remain, if you want that to remain nameless. I that's in storage. <laughs> I can't remember now. I can't remember. What um, but when we design our facilities, we, we try and f- account for that. And we we'll, we will never, you know, under service, you know. From an elevator. From an elevator perspective, we will never under service a building. Yeah. You know, there are times and I've we'll carried ha- 15 things up the stairs and down the well, stairs just because I sure. couldn't wait an hour. Right? When we design a building, you know, from any entry point, you should never be more than 100 feet away from your unit. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, maybe you can give us Aaron to move all four of his uh, units into. Well, uh, I'm one only in one now. Okay. One big one, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Stefan, we always like to end off you know, the guest segment by asking what you would tell a younger version of yourself, you went back to your first day at uh, you know Cushman or wherever you started your brokerage career, what you would go back now and say to yourself as advice to uh, you know enhance your career? Be social. I think real estate itself is, I don't know, you guys, you guys are friendly enough, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, everyone I think in real estate to some degree is willing to help out 
to help out the other guy, whether you be in brokerage or asset management or development, I think, um, just building up your network as quickly as possible and soonly realizing that everyone is out to help you or, you know, help each other. Um, I, I think I hope I'd recognized that uh, a, little, a little bit earlier, but it's neither here nor there. And <laughs> such, such a small industry. Right? Yeah. Well, that's the thing, especially in brokerage. But even even now, I mean, I'm still very, fairly in in touch with the brokerage world, the asset management world, and the development world because I think you know everyone from different asset classes and sectors of, of the industry. You know, it's all of our separate inputs that go into you know creating communities. So the more we work together, the better we're going to be able to do so. Okay. Up next, we've got. An article from the Real Estate News Exchange, an article from the news. Downtown Vancouver office space, a landlord's market. So the reason this caught my eye, and we'll kind of get into it in a second, is Vancouver's experiencing a lot of the same pressures that Toronto is, except they have zero buildings in the pipeline. So while Toronto should effectively be dealing with its low vacancy issue in the office sector over time, Vancouver is not going to. The downtown office vacancy rate is forecast to drop below 5% with no new buildings expected in the next three years. And just for reference sake, Toronto has a sub-5 vacancy rate in the office sector, which is the lowest in North America. So Vancouver would be not far behind. However, Toronto's got X millions of square feet all coming on stream in the next, uh, you know, next uh, couple of years. So we should be okay. And and staggered too. There's 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 probably 500,000 500, or a million a year over the next four, five, six, seven years. Right? There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised to hear that, that they've got nothing going. How many condo developers are like? Oh wait, I could just convert my condo <laughs> <Yeah>. tower. <laughs> To an office building, <laughs> every every cubicle gets a gets a balcony. <laughs> it has to be a pretty compelling argument. Isn't it? The condos yeah. <laughs> builders yeah. out there are doing quite well at the moment. Probably that's why there's no office and not no office yeah. on on board because they're just you can make three times as much money building a condo <laughs> than you can as building an office tower. I think part of the reason would be that uh, the previous wave of office tower construction pushed the downtown vacancy rate up to eleven percent in 2011. So maybe the builders there have a little bit of uh, uh, sour taste in their mouth in the last round of building and want to wait until the demand is literally kicking mm-hmm. in their doors saying, uh, let's build some office. There can't be a lot of space or a lot of land to do it on, though, right? Like I, last I heard, there's there, someone was telling me today, the last two gas stations on the downtown peninsula have been sold to oh. developers. <laughs> so there will be no more gas stations to fill your car up on in the downtown core, so, so like make, on that peninsula, like you know, like where all the the downtown. Yeah, so you, make sure you're full when you're. You literally have to leave, and, and I said, "Well, that's silly. How could the politicians not have gotten in and stopped that?" Well, the politicians hate automobiles. So like, well, go buy a plug-in car then. <laughs> yeah. You don't. You want gas in your gas car? You got. You got to. You got to drive outside of the city core yeah. just to fill up. Yeah. I, I remember hearing secondhand as well the sale prices on those gas stations. The price tag was enormous, like $40 million. Yeah, because they're, yeah, exactly. And that's why they're being sold and not being forced to be used as gas stations anymore. And it's in terms of the tenants that are driving part of the demand. Uh, most of the competition for those spaces is coming from large international or U.S.-based Fortune 500 companies looking to set up or expand their footprint in Vancouver. And many are tech firms, and the vast majority of those are software developers, which is probably great for a city like Vancouver, to get a whole bunch of jobs that are paying a very livable wage with a highly educated community. I mean, you know, it makes a, a great city uh, that much better. And of course, 
every developer in a, any major market in Canada can relate that a slow entitlement process is blamed for the shortage. I was actually just spent last week. Blame the city. That's easy. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, you're in Vancouver, you tell us. Yeah, well, last weekend, yeah, meeting with developers, and that was a constant refrain is that the entitlement process is painfully slow. You're paying very big dollars for land up front and then have to sit on it for you know virtually virtually years. And it uh, yeah, that impacts yield. It impacts the you know the final rents you need to achieve in order to make your your project viable. It's a it's a constant uh, constant complaint. Yeah, and we'll have to have a, a Vancouver developer on. That's something we haven't done yet. But I've I've heard I've heard horror stories. Same thing. Four or five years to get it approved, and and you're dealing with these little fiefdoms, right? North Vancouver and West Vancouver and Surrey and uh, you know Westminster. They all have different councils and they all have mm-hmm. different approaches to development and densities and you know it's just a nightmare to do anything in that city these days yeah so if any Vancouver developers are listening it'll be in Toronto the next yeah come uh, on up yeah. yeah come on up you're the next contestant <laughs> yeah I guess we are at the end I want to I want to thank all the listeners for listening I hope you enjoyed this episode on self-storage I want to thank our sponsor First National uh, if you enjoyed the enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in iTunes and you know make sure you tell a friend about uh, you know what we're trying to put out. And I most of all want to thank our guest, Stefan. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Stefan. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.